Hello everyone. Welcome back to the Home Bible Study Podcast. We are currently studying the letter to the Hebrews and we are in chapter 7. Now last time we looked at uh, verses 1 through 10 and we saw the importance of Melchizedek and his role in the, um, the new covenant and how that the priesthood of Melchizedek is the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in stark contrast to the priesthood that was established in Aaron in the Levitical priesthood. So that was uh, kind of clearly established uh, who Melchizedek is and how he relates to the Lord Jesus and how we relate to that priesthood now being believer priests. So now we're going to look at the logical conclusions based on verses 1 through 10. The writer is now going to make some logical conclusions, comparisons between the priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Now this would be very significant to the people that this was written to. These were Hebrews. And there's kind of a mixed bag um, in the nation Israel. You had those who were um, Pharisees um, and you had, um, you know, these different sects that uh, of belief, those who believed in the resurrection, those who did not, those who supported um, taking over um, Rome by force and those who supported yielding to Rome. So there was all these different factions um, going on and they all had different interpretations of the law and of the prophets and they were pretty divided. Not unlike uh, churches are today with different denominations, but there was really only uh, two um, uh, factions that were kind of the main ones and the Pharisees were considered the most um, strict or the ones that adhere to the old customs the closest. So, uh, but they still had a lot of problems. So there was some confusion going on. And so then Jesus enters into the scene and he says, you have heard people say this, but I say this unto you. So he made a lot of corrections. He corrected a lot of error. Um, and now we're at the point where Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and ascended for several years. And the believers, the, the believers in uh, Hebrews, or uh, the I should say the believers that were in Jerusalem, were suffering a lot of persecution. Well, while that's going on, the gospel is now being proclaimed uh, throughout the world. So it's going beyond just the Hebrew believers from the day of Pentecost and those that were subsequently saved after that. Now it's moving on across the world, right? And so um, they still had a lot of issues there in Jerusalem. Like, you know, how are we supposed to move forward living in an environment that's hostile to us. Um, and we've been closed off from our families, from our businesses, from our culture. So that's what the letter to the Hebrews is for, is to give instruction as to, you know, who they are now in the age that we live in, the church age now that had just begun then and now has been going on for um, hundreds of years. So this is the very beginning of the church age. There needed to be some instruction. There needed to be some guidance. And that's what the letter to the Hebrews is designed for. And it's also full of knowledge for us today. Uh, as the word is living, uh, it's going to instruct us as well. So to start off, to give you some context of what we're going to be studying in Hebrews, I want to start off in Philippians just to give you an idea of what it was like to be uh, a Hebrew believer back then and growing up in that culture and the mindset that was a part of that culture 
that the letter of he- to the Hebrews is trying to address and correct some of the error associated with being immersed in culture. Because, you know, we can get so involved in traditions or family or those things that we're familiar with that we could, uh, it could lead us into error. And we have to be very careful as believers not to allow our environment to dictate what we do and how we do it, but always have the word of God be the guide for who and what we are. Um, We always have to see ourselves from the perspective of being in Christ and not in the world. And that's very challenging. You know, that's a hard thing to do. And uh, but the more you walk, the more steps you take in that, the more comfortable you're going to be in that new man and that new uh, being that the Lord is making us into. So uh, it's very important that we understand that the letter of the Hebrews was written to a particular situation and people, but it also speaks to us today. So let's start off to get some good context as to what it was like to be a Hebrew um, back then. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. Now, in chapter 3, Paul is addressing the concision, is what he calls them. These people who were Judaizers, they would go into churches that were already established and Christians that were established, and they tell them, hey, you have to get back under the law. You know, um, yeah, yeah, that's good that you worship Jesus, but you know, we're this is we're the people where he came from, and this is what he grew up as, and you have to get back under this law if you want to really worship him correctly. So Paul was constantly at battle with these Judaizers and uh, telling the people, look, avoid these people because they are telling you something that is wrong. You don't go backwards to go forward. That's all been done away with. We now live and we worship in a new covenant. So he gave himself as an example here as to, hey, if it was true that there was any righteousness in the the law or the prophets that were associated with the old covenant, then he's like, hey, I would be the most righteous person in the world. But that's not the case. So with that context, I'm going to go ahead and read it. He says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you is safe. And he says, here's the warning. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the concision, which is kind of a play on words on circumcision, because they tried to get people to go get circumcised and under the law, and that was unnecessary. And then he says in verse three, for we are the circumcision, which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. I mean, we don't have to have our flesh circumcised to set us apart. We've been set apart and placed in Christ. We are the real circumcision. We are the fulfillment of what that was in a type. Verse four, he says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Now, if anybody, he says, can have confidence in the flesh, I could, if there was any confidence in the flesh. He says, if any other man thinketh that he hath wherefore he might trust in the flesh, I more, is what he's saying. And now he's gonna kind of use himself as an example and show why these Judaizers, uh, the concision, and why that's just dumb and that you shouldn't follow that. He's going to use logic to show how illogical it is to do that when we know what we know about the Lord Jesus. In verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, right? That's according to the law. Uh, Every Hebrew male had to be circumcised on the eighth day. He says, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, not only am I an Israelite, but I can tell you which tribe I'm from. From the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I am the most pure blood Hebrew that you can be, right? He says, as touching the law, a Pharisee. So he was a member of that very strict sect of the Pharisees. Um, not that they were correct, they were just very strict. And verse six, concerning zeal. Now, if you want to talk about who's zealous for, you know, God, he says, I persecuted the church. That's how zealous I was. He went around killing Christians because he's like, there's no way that somebody's going to go and pull our people away from this 
this uh, law and, and, and the old covenant thing that's things that we hold dear, uh, this new Christianity was doing away with it. And he's like, well, we'll just go kill these people. So that's his zeal for God. Even though it was false, it was definitely um, a zeal. So he says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So he's saying any righteousness that was in the law, he considered himself blameless. Now we know that he knows better now. He knows that there is no righteousness in the law. But that is the mindset of many of these Hebrew people that all they had to do was follow this law and they would you know, be right. But um, we all know that there is no righteousness in the law. The law was never even given to establish righteousness in people. It was to reveal the righteousness of God and by doing so reflect on the lack of righteousness that's in people. And so that's what, um, uh, that's kind of the play that uh, Paul is making here in verse seven. He's, but he says, but, but what things were gained to me when I was a Pharisee before I was saved, those I counted lost for Christ. So after he was saved, he said, all that stuff means nothing. He says, in verse eight, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So he sums it up very well. And he says that all of those things that were important to me that I prioritized, all those things that I thought were what I needed or wanted, um, none of those things compare to the Lord Jesus and having him and obtaining Christ, to being placed in Christ, uh, growing in the Lord Jesus and serving him. So that is the statement that he made very clearly on the law, that there, the righteousness in the law is, is worthless. And here we see in Hebrews, what we're going to study today is going to show you why there's a transition, why there is a need for a different priesthood, um, why the Levitical priesthood never was meant to perfect anyone, that it was only meant to point people to the one who would provide that, per, that perfection in the Lord Jesus. So without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, pick up in Hebrews uh, chapter 7 starting in verse 11, and I'm going to go ahead and read. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, this is uh, the writer making this logical uh, conclusion based on the fact that um, the Melchizedekian uh, priesthood was necessitated in the first place. So he says, if there was perfection, uh, whereby if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? So he's asking, he's like, you know, the very existence of the priesthood of Melchizedek proves that the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood was never intended to complete or perfect anyone. So there must have been a problem with that priesthood in relationship to perfecting people because if there wasn't, there wouldn't have been a need for Melchizedek and his priesthood. And Melchizedek, remember, came first. So clearly God knew and had a purpose and intent for Melchizedek. The church was in the priesthood of Melchizedek before the church ever became, before it was revealed to anyone. Um, the Aaronic priesthood had a different purpose, right? And we're going to see that as we continue. Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity, necessity a change also to the law so this is very big to these people right you're telling these hebrew people that all that they've known in the past 
the circumcision, the law, the uh, temple worship, the sacrifices. You're telling them now, all of a sudden, that is null and void. That's a big change. And so here we see the author being very careful to explain why. Okay. He says, for the priesthood being changed, right? Meaning that now that uh, the Lord Jesus is in the, the line of Melchizedek, his priesthood is in the line. And so, so everyone in Christ is also in that line. So now he says that priesthood has been changed. There is made a necessity, okay? There is made of necessity a change also of the law. So now we see that there is a different law, right? And uh, it said in the scripture that um, the in the prophecy was in Joel that I'm going to write the law upon their hearts, right? That's God the Holy Spirit indwelling people now. So now we don't have uh, tablets that were given to us or letters that are written down to say, you know, you must do this, you must do that. Now we have the indwelling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, as was mentioned earlier in this book. That's why it's so important for us not to quench the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, because that is the law of God written upon our hearts. In verse 13 here, it says, For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at an altar. So here we see um, kind of the, the, the transition being made and the comparison again. Now, the Levitical priesthood, they served at an altar here, here on earth. I mean, it was man-made. Everything associated with what they did was man-made according to the strict requirements of what God told them how to make it. But it was definitely all man-made but in verse 13 we see for he of whom these things are spoken speak talking about Melchizedek uh, pertaining to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at an altar so we have no record of Melchizedek serving at an altar right there's no record of that but we do have a record of Aaron serving at an altar so what was the purpose of the Levitical priesthood? That should be the next question. Okay, well, if it's being done away with, what was the purpose? Well, I think the purpose could be seen in Galatians 3, 24 through 27, where it says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So that was the purpose of the law it was a schoolmaster it was to teach the people about the righteous requirements of god and of the lord jesus and that's why there was constant sacrifice but we don't see that with Melchizedek. there's no altar there's no sacrifice uh where there's a constant going to an altar and being constantly reminded of your sin and your failure. That's not there. It's not associated with, um, with Melchizedek and his ministry. In verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. So here we go using the lineage of the Lord Jesus. So um, the Lord Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. Right, He was the lion of the tribe of Judah that was prophesied. And there's no priesthood associated with Judah. The priesthood was strictly associated with the Levitical tribe. And so for someone to try to circumvent that was a, you know, was breaking the law and it, the penalty was dead. So there's no way that you could be a Levitical priest if you were not born in the tribe of Levi. So clearly the Lord Jesus has nothing to do with that. That's what he's saying in verse 14. The Lord came out of Judah, so he has nothing to do with the Levitical priesthood. So we know he's a priest. He's a prophet, priest, and king. So how is he a priest then? That's the logical argument that's being presented. And it's so important to the Hebrews because they needed to understand that what they were experiencing and all of the people that were telling them something contrary to the truth, 
They needed to know what to base their faith and their understanding upon. And it's clearly described here that the Lord Jesus is from a different tribe and not of the Levitical priesthood. So there is no going to the Levitical priesthood for salvation. The salvation is in the tribe of Judah, okay? Because that's the tribe that he came from. In verse 15, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. So here we see the proof that the Lord Jesus uh, is a priest, that he has claimed to the priesthood that's associated with Melchizedek. In verse 16, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Now, this is so important to anybody who is a believer that the law was based on a carnal commandment. The law was given to the nation Israel because of the weakness of the flesh. Paul says in Romans, he says, I wouldn't know what lusting was or coveting was until the law said, do not covet. And then I realized that how, how much I coveted. Right. Yeah, I was full of covetedness, covetedness. That's good. So um, that's the purpose of the law. It was to reveal the righteousness of God and the sin that is in us and the huge chasm between the two. And the only way that we could approach God was through some very specific means that he presented to us through the law. That was all set up to, A, be a schoolmaster and teach us about our sin, reveal it to us clearly, and B, to give us access to the one who could deliver us from our greatest um, malady, which is, you know, sin itself. Those are the two things that the law um, accomplished, right? In verse 16, it says, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. So why is that significant? Why is it important that Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus are eternal? That Why is it important that that priesthood is eternal? Well, the power of the salvation that we enjoy as believers is hinged upon eternity. Um, you have to have an endless life to be able to constantly overcome sin. Think of sin when it started. Sin is eternal. That's why the judgment for sin is eternal. When people go to hell in the lake of fire, it's eternal. One sin is all it takes to, to put you in hell in the lake of fire forever. Because the, the testimony of sin is eternal. So the only way to overcome an eternal testimony is with one that is eternal that's greater than that. And greater is he who is in us than he, than he who is in the world. Because uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're all one testifying against mankind. And the blood of Christ and its purifying righteousness, okay, has to be able to overcome that evil, that testimony against us. And it has to be eternal. So if you imagine a line going straight, right, from your line of sight straight forward, and it never stops, that's sin. Well, there's another line now because of the Lord Jesus and his ministry as a priest on our behalf and associated with Melchizedek, now there's another line of his blood. And remember, the life is in the blood. That's the principle. And that life goes to, uh, parallel to that sin and it covers over and does away with it. So now when the father sees us, instead of seeing that line of sin that uh, follows us, that we were born in, he sees now the blood of his son. And the blood of his son does away with the sin altogether. The sin and the judgment for the sin he took upon himself. 
Okay, and that blood is eternal. And that eternal life is now given to us. So that's why it's so important that our salvation be understood and under the priesthood of Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus and how that his substitutionary death paid the penalty. So this is very important to understand that um, we are saved by the Lord Jesus and the power of an endless life. That's him. In verse 17, for he testifieth, thou art priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who testifieth? Well, the father. The father made this statement that the Lord Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That placed him in a position and a place to be able to represent all those whom the father gave him to redeem them. Because in this position as priest, right, he is able to minister on behalf of those of us in need, those whom the Father chose at the before the foundation of the world and gave to him to redeem. And this is the proof that he is qualified to redeem us. He has the position to be able to, re, to redeem us. He's been placed and given this uh, position by the Father. He said in verse 17, For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now you see why it's so important to understand and know who Melchizedek was and why the Lord Jesus is associated with his priestly ministry. In verse 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. So here we see the statement of the writer saying that, look, the, the law and the prophets, they've been disannulled because now we are in the New Testament, right? That was the Old Testament. Now we're in the New Testament. And that has been disannulled by something greater, by someone greater, by a priesthood and a ministry that is greater. All of those things associated with the Old Testament they pointed to Christ, they pointed to heavenly things, but they were made from things from the earth, right? The whole thing was earthly. But now we have the Lord Jesus who has taken those earthly things because he came to earth and he's taken the heavenly things and he's reconciled them in himself. And we are now placed in him, all right? So there's a disannulling because of the better things that have come. And that's what this whole letter is about, how that Jesus and the, the church age and the time we live in is better. We have better things, heavenly things, not earthly things. In verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. There we go. That's the statement in and of itself. The law never made anything perfect. There was a constant bringing of sacrifices. You constantly had to bring a sacrifice for sin. It never ended. So there was no perfection in the law. It was only a schoolmaster. It was something to reflect and, and to show us our need. That was the purpose. There was never anybody made perfect in the law. It says, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw near unto God. Think about that. So now the disannulling has happened because better things have come now. The law didn't make anything perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope has accomplished uh, making, making us perfect in Christ. We're, we're positionally perfect in Christ. We're progressively being perfected now on earth, but we have been placed in Christ. He sees us is already perfect because he's going to perfect us, right? He's doing that work. That's the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to seal and to perfect us and to bring us to that point of full maturation. So the law never did that. There was nothing in the law that accomplished that, but the bringing in of a better hope, this disannulling in the New Testament coming in uh, to play in the Lord Jesus, that did. 
you know, and now we can draw near to God. That's what I think is so significant when you compare the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a lot of things that had to be done before you could draw near unto God. You had to find a Levitical priest first. You have to go to the tabernacle. You got to get the right um, sacrifice for whatever sin offering or whatever offering that you're making. And there's a lot of work that had to be done to draw near to God. And usually it wasn't a corporate uh, type drawing to God. It was an individual that represented everyone else, uh, be it a Moses or a high priest, um, a Samuel, uh, whoever it might have been. Um, and, and that is very different from what we have now. Now we individually, you who's listening to this, me, we can individually draw near to God. There's no barrier in the way. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. He accomplished bringing us to him. People um, often ask people uh, what they think Christianity is, what they, how they define a Christian. And there's a lot of, they say a lot of different things. But the correct definition of Christianity is God bringing someone to himself and that's what he accomplished in the Lord Jesus we had nothing to do with that there was no work involved Jesus did all the work to bring us near to God he drew us in he made the way for us to be able to have this relationship through the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit if Jesus had not been a acceptable sacrifice the Lamb of God there would be no access to God the Holy Spirit he said, the reason I leave is so that the comforter, comforter can come to you. He said, that's why I'm leaving, so that I can send the comforter. And that's the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And God, the Holy Spirit, is how we draw near to God, because God brings us to himself. In verse 20, and in so much as without an oath, um, he was made a priest. And verse 21, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So just to, just in case people were like, well, I don't know, um, writer to the Hebrews, you're saying that, you know, it's been disannulled, but are you sure? He's saying, well, you know, if you don't want to believe me, believe the word of God, because the Levitical priesthood was never established with an oath. It was established with a law, right? Which is basically a judgment. But here, this priesthood is so important. It is so sure. And it's based on uh, so much so much better things that it's, it's based on the oath that came from the Father. And the oath was stated. He says, uh, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, which is the Father speaking unto the Lord Jesus, the Lord swear and will not repent, meaning this is forever. Like God doesn't have to say that. God never has to swear or say, I promise, because his word is true and it's established. And everything that comes out of his mouth is established as truth. So when he does add this oath to what he's saying, he does that for our benefit. Because it's something that's so important that he uh, gives us something extra, an extra um, something to hold on to. And it's always his word. And so he so the Lord Jesus ministry as a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, was established with this oath. So it's done and it won't change. That is how we know that we're going to be priests forever. Our priesthood will never change. The things that we're doing now, the way that we serve now as priests, um, that's now. And we may serve in a different way in heaven. But the fact that we are priests um, in Christ, that will never change. That is our eternal state of being. That is our eternal job as priests. Um, 
as priests with the Lord Jesus. And that's what we're going to serve and how we're going to serve him. So we should be learning about what that is and what's required of us now so that we'll know what our eternal um, position will be in our eternal work that we're going to be doing to serve him. So that's what we are. Verse 22, by so much as Jesus, uh, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So all of that was just to make us to know that the ministry of the Lord Jesus is, uh, it's better. It's a, a better testament that we have better things and that we don't have to worry that, oh no, you know, are we wrong or, you know, can we trust the, the person and work of the Lord Jesus? Yes, you can. That's what verse 22 is saying. It's a better testament. Verse 23, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So here's a comparison made to the Levitical priest, to the Lord Jesus. He's saying, now they had a bunch of priests. There was constantly having new priests come in and priests go out because they were human and they died and they were um, subject to the effects of sin, right? And so they died. So there needed to be many priests. As compared to the Lord Jesus, there's only one. And there's, there's something very important there about the work of the Levitical priest never ending because it never perfected anyone, but the work of the Lord Jesus, he brought better things because his work was perfect. He was perfect and he was able to perfect those that are in Christ. In verse 24, but this man in contrast, talking to the Lord Jesus, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So that's where I get the... Um, the assertion that we too in Christ are going to be priests forever. So if you're ever wondering, well, what are we going to be doing in heaven? That's what we're going to be doing. We'll be serving as priests in the line of Melchizedek. That's why it's so important for us to learn who Melchizedek is and what it means to be a priest in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, because that is our eternal um, position just like it is for the Lord Jesus. In verse 25, Wherefore he is able also to save them uh, to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now this goes back to that whole ministry of his blood and how that it's eternal. It's always making intercession on behalf of those who are saved. Those who come to the Lord Jesus for salvation, he has it to give. Because his blood is eternal. He is eternal. And he now is seated in heaven, interceding on behalf of those whom he's redeemed. His blood speaks like the blood of Abel spoke, right? It spoke out. It yelled out, hey, you know, I was murdered. Well, that's a man. Imagine the blood of Christ. It speaks far more. And it speaks on our behalf. And that's how that we can know that we're saved, that there's nothing that can separate us from his love because that blood speaks on our behalf. He's intercede, interceding for us. Uh, verse 26, for such a high priest became us, meaning we have such a high priest, such an amazing and powerful high priest interceding on our behalf who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. So here we see the writer giving some of the attributes of the Lord Jesus. He's holy, meaning he's set apart. He's harmless. That's something we need to really meditate on, that he's harmless, that he would do he will not do any harm to anyone. That's his nature, that he's harmless. That, that's why I think that he is likened to a lamb uh, because it's, nobody's afraid of a lamb. They're very gentle creatures. They're harmless. Um, 
and and he has that characteristic about him that he is harmless that he would not cause harm to anyone that's his nature uh, undefiled uh, not able to be defiled not able to be sullied by anything his righteousness his beauty his holiness his light is pure and it's constant and it can't be defiled he's separate from sinners right he's separated from sinners we know what it's like to be around sinners because we're sinners right and we also know what it's like to walk in the spirit because only saved people can do that and when you're walking in the spirit you see sin from a different perspective you see sin from god's perspective and not from the perspective of something that you're used to and that you embrace and when you're when you have that influence of God the Holy Spirit to show you sin, you see how ugly it is and you don't want to be a part of it. You know, you want to be separate from sin. And the Lord Jesus is constantly that way. He's constantly separate from sinners. You know, he's never sinned ever in his life. Sin had to be placed upon him because he didn't know sin. He was perfect, you know, in every way. And so we get kind of an idea of what that means, but we don't have any idea from the perspective truly of the separateness that the Lord Jesus um, knows. But we will. One day uh, when we're in heaven, we will know that and we'll know it for eternity. And it says, and made higher than the heavens. So Jesus, if you think about the heavens, uh, you have um, the, the sky that we know, you know, with the clouds. Then you have the second heaven, which is space. And then beyond that is third heaven, which is the throne room of God. And you think about how high and lofty that is. And that Jesus is higher than that. That the heavens cannot contain him. That's how exalted he is. The Father has exalted him that high. That heaven cannot contain him. That's why he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Because the heavens that exist now cannot contain him. And uh, it's all because of his uh, faithfulness and to the Father. In verse 27, who needeth not daily as those high priests, meaning the Levitical high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered himself. So this is the big difference between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. That they had to offer sin offer for the sins of their, themselves and then they made offerings for the people the lord jesus never had to make a sin offering for himself you know there's no record of him making an offering for sin because he didn't have to he didn't have any sin right and they had to it says that they offer up uh these uh, sacrifices constantly where he only had to do it once and he offered himself, right? They could, the a Levitical priests, they couldn't offer themselves. They had to go to, you know, get a lamb or a goat or some heifer. And they had all these different sacrifices that they had to offer, you know, for themselves and for the people because they were unrighteous. And none of those goats or heifers, none of those satisfied the righteous requirement of God for sin it only covered it up so that God could interact with them uh, as a holy God, right? And it was that was the difference. But the Lord Jesus, he was able to offer himself because he's a perfect sacrifice. He could take the sin of all those whom the Father gave him and he could take that burden upon himself and offer himself on our behalf. And that's exactly what he did. In verse 28, for the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son 
who is consecrated forevermore. So this is the final statement um, on the law and the priesthood as compared to the Lord Jesus. The law made men priests. And you could be a high priest even. You know, you could go in once a year on behalf of the people and offer up a sacrifice for yourself and then for the people. The law made provision for that. Why? Because God is gracious and he desires to fellowship and to give man access to him. So he made this provision through the law to have this ceremony that would allow men to be able to have access to him. Right? But he says, the law maketh high priests which have infirmity. Right? Because we're sinners. That's our infirmity. We are sinners. And we're born in sin. We're conceived in iniquity. And we have to have, there has to be a sacrifice to give us access to a holy and righteous God. And that's what the law was for. But the contrast is the word of the oath. Okay, there's no law associated with that. The father, before the law was even made, gave this word of an oath to make the Lord Jesus to be uh, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek and a priest that's perfect and could do away with sin forever. They could once for all deal with the sin issue. It says, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, meaning it was before the law, before the law ever came into being, Melchizedek was given this, this uh, word of the oath and that the Lord Jesus would be uh, the uh, a priesthood in the line of Melchizedek forever. So the oath maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. I, th I think it's interesting to, um, to think about how these two compare to one another. It's, it's so interesting to see the how that God had already made the provision for what we needed. And no one knew that, not even the prophets, you know. They longed to look into the things and understand the things that we're able to understand and know now uh, about the church and how that the Lord Jesus had already uh, planned our redemption. He had already established all the things and placed them in place so that we could enjoy him and enjoy access to him. Um, you know, what a blessing to think about that. I mean, what a blessing just to meditate on that. These are some very uh, weighty things that we're talking about. These are some weighty doctrines that uh, are being revealed to us. And they're weighty doctrines that are revealed to those Hebrew believers. Remember that the whole church was only Jewish people in the beginning. And so they needed this instruction just like we do. Uh, they were making a big transition from the Old Testament economy to the New Testament economy. There was a, it was a new age, the beginning of the church age. You know, we can look back and, you know, it's not a big deal to us to talk about the church and how that's associated with the Old Testament and Old Covenant. But at the very beginning, this must have been mind-blowing that um, all the work had been completed. And now all those things that were associated with the constantly, constantly offering sacrifices, going to the temple, all of that was done away with in the Lord Jesus. That's better. That's good news. That is a gospel. But it would have been very difficult, you can imagine, for them to embrace that, this huge change, especially in light of the persecution that they were experiencing. The, the key thing here I think we need to take away from, though, is in the completeness of the Lord Jesus' sacrifice, that he offered himself, and that the perfection came through his life and through his blood, which is eternal. In verse 28, I think the, the main thing... Uh, that we need to see is this word consecrated. It says, 
For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. That word consecrated means perfect or complete. That suggests very strongly and states actually that salvation is done, that it's finished, that Jesus accomplished what the law could not. And us not being under the law for years and years, we don't understand the the burden that the law was. To constantly have to be careful about what you ate and, you know, constantly being careful about, you know, what you did and being conscious of the need for uh, sin offerings and that was just a huge burden that was placed upon the people by the law. And it's one that they asked for. And now that burden has been taken away. Jesus says, you know, take my yoke because my yoke is light. And that's what he was referring to. Now we're in Christ and we don't have any sacrifices to bring. We don't have to do any of those things, uh, bring any animals we only serve him now in spirit and in truth. And the sacrifices that we offer are the sacrifices of thanksgiving, of praise. You know, that's far easier to do than to have to make a trek every year uh, to the temple or uh, constantly bringing, not just every year, constantly bringing sin offerings um, and following that regimented um, law that they were given. So we have a lot to be thankful for and to praise God for. And I hope that these things uh, are meaningful to you, that they have, uh, that the Lord Jesus makes them to be meaningful in your life, that you and I both can embrace the grace that we have been given to be able to serve the Lord Jesus in the time that we do. And I pray that he would be exalted uh, in the study of his word. Let's close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and how that you made him a priest forever and the ramifications uh, to those of us who you have called out and saved and placed in the Lord Jesus, that we're there eternally, that there's nothing that can separate us from his love, nothing that we can do and nothing that can be done to us that it's eternal and we have this forever. And I pray that we would serve you well, that we would glorify you in our lives and that that would be our priority. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.